Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. In the New Testament, Jesus went into the temple in his hometown, and he opened up the scroll and read this verse, and then he told the people that the verse had been fulfilled in their hearing, which meant the verse was all about him. Now, we would have known the verse was about him anyway, because it perfectly describes his ministry. He did heal blind people. He proclaimed the news of his salvation to anyone who was poor, and he set those who were in captivity to sin free. He delivered us from the bondage of our own sin. And he also brought people out of darkness because he revealed who he was and that he was the only way to the Father. The reason we call him Jesus Christ is because Christ means anointed. He is the anointed one, the one who was anointed to be our Messiah and our Savior. This verse also says that he is anointed. Now it also calls the Lord Sovereign. When a nation is sovereign, that means that it has governance over itself. The Lord has governance over himself. No one else can challenge him or judge him. This is one of the most prophetic verses in the entire Bible, and this chapter is one of the most prophetic chapters in the entire Bible. After Jesus proclaimed that this verse was about him, shortly thereafter they tried to push him over the edge of a cliff because they didn't want to hear that he was equal with God and that he was the Son of God. Because you can only be the anointed if you are the Son of God. And if you are the Son of God, you're equal with him because you have his power. Because in ancient times, any son retained and exacted whatever power his father had. So a son could do business in the name of his father. Jesus has all the power of the father because he is God. So Jesus told people that he was God he didn't use the phrase, I am God, because he didn't have to. He used other phrases like, I am, and I am the Son of God. Also quoting this verse and saying that it was fulfilled was another way of saying that he was God. We also have proof that he said he was God because that was the very crime that he was crucified for. So anybody who claims that Jesus never said he was God, you should remind them of that. That was the so-called crime that he hung on the cross for. It's a well-documented historical fact that Jesus claimed to be God. And that's also why they tried to throw him over the cliff when he finished reading this verse. 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now notice that Jesus said in this verse, and it was said in other places in the New Testament, that the Lord comforts the poor by telling them the gospel. And today we have it very wrong. We try to comfort the poor by giving them a bag of groceries or some new socks or underwear, but we don't tell them the gospel. And people don't get saved, and then they just end up going there for the free meal or the free socks. 
Jesus didn't play games with people. He told them who he was, and he told them to repent. In verse 2, it says, Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The ministry of Jesus Christ was a little bit over a year. It was just under a year and a half long. It was 70 weeks long. And we'll talk about that more when we get to the book of Daniel and when we get to the Gospels. The Bible proves that his ministry was 70 weeks long, not three and a half years as all of the seminary pastors have told you. So it literally was the year of his favor when Jesus' ministry began. And Jesus will also come in vengeance when he returns during the great and terrible day of the Lord. And verse 2 also mentions the vengeance of God. It also says he comforts everyone who mourns. If you're mourning over your wasted life and all of the sins that you committed, he will comfort you with forgiveness and peace and restoration. People teach that all you have to do is say the salvation prayer and you're saved. If you're not really sorry for your sins, you're just parroting. There's no transformation. And that's why after people parrot the verse, nothing happens. They really aren't getting saved. They're just getting religion. But when you are truly sorry for your sins, you grieve and you mourn and you feel awful. You're gutted knowing what you did against the Lord, and it hurts you and it causes you pain. Those are the people who will be comforted, not the ones sitting there parroting the salvation prayer. 3. And provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. An oak is a tree that gets very big and very old, and it lasts a very long time. By saying that they will be oaks, it means that they will have a long spiritual ministry and they will be able to affect a lot of people because an oak provides shade. That would be the shade of the gospel that we spread to other people. This verse 3 is also one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It says that Jesus himself takes the ashes of our life away and instead crowns us with the beauty of his salvation. Our life is ashes because of our sin. We ruin relationships, we we waste years pursuing selfish interests when we could be spreading the gospel and comforting others and sharing our testimony. But then he gives us the oil of joy. You can only have true joy if you're saved. Joy surpasses happiness and grief and sorrow and fear. It surpasses all other emotions. And you can feel joy even if you're about ready to get your head cut off for Jesus because it surpasses the other emotions that are involved. You can have joy even if your boss fires you because you're a Christian. And it says he will give us a garment of praise. He will take away our spirit of despair and instead we will praise him. 4. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Those who follow the Lord will renew the earth. That's why God says that the meek will inherit the earth. We will inherit a new earth that we inhabit. But also this is a metaphor for inhabiting the ancient ruins of our soul. 
because our souls get so damaged from sin. It makes your soul a ruin because you don't have character anymore. You don't have an identity anymore. You don't have your sanity anymore. But when Jesus restores you, then all those areas of your life also get restored. These ruins being restored is a metaphor for your life being restored. Again, restoration of life doesn't mean that we get rich. It means that we have an identity and our personality isn't hijacked by demons anymore. We are truly ourselves in Jesus Christ. 5. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. This is also talking about when King Cyrus liberates Jerusalem from the Babylonians, and it says that foreigners will come and help the Israelites to herd their flocks and raise their crops. 6. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Because of King Cyrus, Israel could start trading again with the other nations, and people from other nations could come and make a sacrifice and get forgiven of the Lord. 7. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance, and so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. Everlasting means forever. This is also talking about heaven. This double portion of inheritance will go to those who have grieved in verse 4. So if you just say the salvation prayer without grieving over your sin and without being sorry for your sin, you've wasted your breath. That won't save you. But if you're truly sorry for your sin and you repent, then you will be saved. Jesus told a parable of a tax collector and a religious man both praying. The religious man was confident and thought that he was already saved, but the tax collector was crying tears of grief over his sin and begging the Lord to forgive him, and he had no confidence because he knew how sinful he was. And Jesus said that it was the one who was grieving and crying who was forgiven, not the other. 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. He hates the fact that in this life his people get robbed. We don't get promotions. We don't get job opportunities because we're not a member of the sinner's club a lot of times. People ignore us. People even think that we're in sin sometimes because we don't play their religious games and we don't dance to their religious tune, so they will actually accuse us of being wayward Christians. I was once in a church and they refused to let me take communion with them because I didn't practice all of their religious ordinances. I told them I couldn't do it because part of Christianity is forsaking religion and following Christ, but they still wouldn't let me take communion. So I had to leave that church because I thought to myself, if they can't recognize that I'm a born-again Christian by my lifestyle and my testimony and my words, and they think that I'm not saved because I won't do their religious stuff, 
then they must not be saved. So I don't belong in this church. We can even get robbed in the churches because we just don't fit in. If you follow Christ, you're not going to fit in in a lot of places. But he will make an everlasting covenant with those who follow him. 9. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. During the millennial reign, whoever is truly following Christ will lead with him from Jerusalem and judge the nations, so the nations will know who they are. They will know that those are the true people of God. 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The robe of righteousness is brilliant white, and that represents that our sins have been forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is now in us, and because he never sinned, and because we have repented, we now can wear that white robe of righteousness. The white robe of righteousness is mentioned all throughout scripture in the Old and the New Testament. Anyone who goes to heaven will be wearing a brilliant white robe. Also, when angels appear, sometimes they appear wearing their own robes of righteousness that are brilliant white. And Jesus is pictured a couple of times in the Bible also wearing a brilliant white robe in his glorified form. The church is his bride because we submit to him and obey him, and he is our bridegroom because he saves and protects us. 11. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This will happen during the millennial reign. In a small way, it happened during King Cyrus's reign in Persia because he allowed Jerusalem to flourish and practice its faith openly, so it was like a blossom in the desert. But during the millennial reign, the whole world is going to praise Jesus because Jesus is going to be king for a thousand years. And that concludes Isaiah chapter 61.